Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Robert Smith, I hope you approve of the new syntax. <laughs> Theo, you missed that particular wrangle. Oh, but no, I heard, I heard all about it. Yeah. Did you think I was introducing the show wrong? We're not going to refight this battle, I've conceded, but did you think I was introducing it wrong? Well, I mean, I suppose it's the difference between written and spoken and errors creep into the spoken. Do you think it's an error? Leave it there. All right. All right. That's Thea Lenarduzzi, queen of artisanal cheese, is back from her extended break. Did you have any especially nice festive food? Uh, well, I obviously had an inordinate and indecent amount of cheese. So did Elle, uh, who our colleague, and she ate a lot of brie. And I was reminded of the... Um, Very claggy cheese. Have you seen uh, Anchorman? Yeah. Where the dog eats a whole wheel of brie. The Anchorman himself, Will Ferrell, said, I'm not even angry, I'm just impressed. Yeah my dog uh, sadly no longer with us um every year i'm gonna try and keep this short every year my family because we were in italy would make up these christmas hampers yeah. uh, to bring to our relatives in england and we'd drive over with them you know four or five of them at a time and they'd we'd put like janduja in them and all sorts of it salami no no chocolates oh. uh, and salami and parmesan oh. stuff like that for our british relatives and we had about four of these made up in the basement and we came back from a day out um and we were like, oh, where's 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 the dog? What's the dog called? Amber. Amber. Oh, she was she was the Marilyn Monroe of the dog world. Lovely. She was, um, a gorgeous Labrador. Uh, anyway, so we were like, where where is she? Where is she? We we're really starting to worry. We thought she'd gone away. She'd run away. Uh, and about an hour or so after us getting back, she emerged, sloped up the stairs, basically dragging herself, panting furiously. And went straight to her full water bowl and emptied it. We filled it up again, wondering what the hell was wrong with her. She emptied it again and she'd eaten four hampers worth of, you know, probably, I don't know, kilos and kilos of incredibly salty aged oh, cheese. Did she, she didn't eat the chocolate? Oh, she ate everything. But the chocolate, cheese was, chocolate can kill yeah, dogs. Yeah, it can be poisonous, yeah. not not mine. I mean, no. but mine also ate things like Nutella. She, she could eat anything. It's a proper she ate poisonous caterpillars. You had a, you had a foodie dog. <laughs> she, took a, she once took a bottle of wine to her basket. Off the draining board. That's so Italian, isn't it? <laughs> she didn't break it. She just lifted it off yeah. the draining board and took it with her of to her bed. Of course she had a foodie dog. <laughs> My dog Biscuit is not foodie at all. 
In spite of the name. In spite of the name, exactly. Uh, uh, the January sale of the TLS is now on. I mentioned it last week. 12 issues for £6, which is a total bargain. Google TLS subscription and get the best deal now. Right, coming up on today's show. Who killed Edwin Drood? Well, nobody knows because Charles Dickens died while writing his final novel on the subject. That didn't stop a bunch of scholars and literary types in 1914 staging a mock trial of the suspect John Jasper. The result was a bit of a shambles, as Peter Orford will tell us. Keeping the mood murderous, Tom Stevenson will give us a recent history of political assassination, including the CIA guide to how to do it, and we'll discuss the writer and political activist from the interwar period, Nancy Cunard. The TLS is publishing for the first time her only ever short story, and Anna Gerling joins us to talk about it and this underrated woman of letters. The success rate for political assassinations is probably worse than you might think. According to a study by the National Bureau of Economic Research in 2007, there have been 298 attempts on national leaders since 1875, and just 59 were successful. That's a hit rate of less than 20%. It's a fascinating fact I learnt from reading Tom Stevenson's History of Political Assassination in this week's TLS. He's been looking into the CIA's 1953 handbook for offing troublesome leaders, and has been reporting himself on recent examples of state-sanctioned murder and he's on the line now. Tom, welcome. Hello there. Firstly, I mean, one of the lessons I took from uh, this piece is that assassinations are kind of surprisingly inept course of action very often. That's exactly right. I mean, one of the most surprising things about them when you start sort of looking into them is that uh, the target sort of seldom dies, <laughs> which you'd think would be a prerequisite for the planning. And, <laughs> yeah. and often they're a little bit more slapdash than certainly than the killers or would be killers uh, hope that they might be. Uh, I give the example in the piece of uh, the Ghanaian uh, post-independence leader Kwame Nkrumah, who survived at least five assassination attempts. There's five that are quite well documented. And uh, one, of, one of his bodyguards was injured in one of them, I believe. But uh, he died uh, many years later in his own bed. So. I'm always struck, actually, whenever you read about Castro and the, you know, there was an invasion of Cuba. They, the CIA got around to organising the invasion and they couldn't kill Castro in Cuba. I mean, they tried explosive cigars and stuff like that. But again, they didn't seem able to ever get through. That's right. And in some ways, that's the sort of thing that makes you sceptical of a CIA handbook on exactly how to commit an assassination. Uh, Nonetheless, in the piece, uh, I look at this study, which was written by an anonymous CIA analyst in 1953 at a time when uh, the CIA was, as you've just mentioned, very active in Latin America. In fact, was engaged in a plot to try and overthrow the Guatemalan government of Jacobo Arbenz Guzman. They planned an assassination, eventually went for a, a coup d'etat, of course, in 1954, which was successful. And this, this document was produced in that, in that exact context. Um, and it's, it's a sort of fascinating piece in which this analyst looks through in quite a technical way. So it, it, it's, it's macabre, definitely, exactly how assassinations might be planned and carried out and, and, and places actually a, a great deal of emphasis on this problem that a great many assassinations don't result in anyone dying. Uh, so the, the technique of the coup de grace and making it effective is, is sort of this, uh, with a sort of a, a scholarly uh, sensibility, is, is, is the subject of this document. So do you think it was... Do you think it was it was written with a view to 
being a kind of a manual for for members of the CIA who have already been recruited to to carry out assassination attempts, or was it to sort of recruit people who from with it still from within the CIA who might be interested and wondered whether it was the career for them? <laughs> yes, well, uh, the the document itself does sort of reference that. I mean, so it notes that. Uh, there is a line in it which says something along the lines is, of course, a United States service would never engage in assassination. <laughs> however, however, were were anyone to engage in it on our behalf, perhaps, or, you know, were, were the information to be needed, here's the ways that it might be done. So you can sort of try to make from that what you will. And as I said, the, the historical background gives some information on it, whether it's the sort of thing that they would have distributed uh, to, you know, to contractors or someone with internally to the services information that I'm not really sure that, that we have. They do, uh, they do helpfully so. point out that it's, it's not a job for the morally squeamish. <laughs> yes. you're in any doubt. <laughs> I think that's one of the understatements potentially of the 20th century. Uh, uh, that, uh, what lessons do you learn from having read it all, all, all Tommy? Explosives aren't very good, was one I took from it. A dismal 7% success rate for blowing people up, which... Again, feels surprising. I suppose Hitler, you know, that 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 was a, you know that was an organised assassination of Hitler, and that didn't work with an explosion either. Well, that's exactly right. But the, the, the there's actually a sort of an sense in which the CIA analyst, and sorry, the CIA analyst is very perceptive here, which is that he spends quite a lot of time saying that most assassination attempts are planned using either firearms or explosives, and neither of them actually have uh, very, very good records. So in the case of the NBER uh, study, which you just mentioned in the introduction, uh, about 85% of all assassination attempts on national leaders use either a firearm or an explosive. And as you said, explosives, just a 7% chance of killing the target, and firearms, something like 30%. And then when you look at explosives as well, I mean, the CIA analyst analyst has this great line, which is that they they have a high propensity for uh, going off at the wrong time and killing the wrong person, which yeah. is something which you just see over and over again in historical record. And then there's this this even more wonderful line about the the, the, the what seem to be the obvious choices for an assassination of, of firearms uh, and how, why they might not be the best, which is that uh, the uh, the sorry the obviously lethal lethal machine gun failed to kill Trotsky, where an item of sporting goods succeeded. And morphine is uh, just a couple of grains of morphine is the best. Yes, well, the the analyst spends quite a lot of time considering poisons, which is of course topical in the context of the uh, Skripal case, uh, and uh, says that the problem with poisons is that possessing them can be incriminating, and that that can sort of lead to discovery, which you know could throw a spanner in the works. So an overdose of morphine, uh, two grains will suffice i believe is the recommendation is uh, is the is the conclusion that they come to in that well, case we, 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 we obviously should be careful about that <laughs> 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 like recommend, recommending that to anybody to attempt yes uh, but actually one a thing, dis- as a disclaimer no one ought to give two grains of morphine to, to anybody, anybody yeah, exactly <laughs> uh, but one of the things that struck me actually because one of the um, in recent times and you've written about both of these we've seen two horrendous uh and kind of inept assassinations sort of Khashoggi killed by the Saudi state, certainly, uh, in an awful, horrific and botched, inept and kind of amateurish way. And then the Skripal um, as well, where the only death was was of an innocent bystander. Uh, the excuses were feeble. The setup was lame that these guys pretending to visit Salisbury Cathedral. One of the things that strikes me looking at this, that, that maybe that fits in with an awful lot of assassination attempts. They're not done very well. It's not cloak and dagger and tremendous efficiency it's it's almost laughable immoral human beings cocking things up 
I think that's uh, an excellent description. Yes, they're very often slapdash and poorly planned, and one sort of imagines, uh, as you say, a sort of a surgical precision, uh, perhaps by an an over an overarching tyrannical state. And there are plenty of overarching tyrannical states which do carry out assassinations and sometimes are successful in them. But the planning very often does go awry. Uh, so there's an awful lot that can and and, and does go goes wrong, either because too many people are involved, or because the wrong person gets killed, or because nobody gets killed whatsoever and uh, we, it comes back and back again to this problem of the of, of the wrong sort of technique I, I should should sort of add that my interest in this is a, is a dilettante's interest not an expert's interest uh, <laughs> but uh, I have reported on three assassination attempts uh, in the last few years in in Cairo the assassination of the prosecutor general Hisham Barakat in uh, in Ankara, the assassination of the Russian ambassador in Turkey, Andrei Karlov, and then the uh, Khashoggi case more recently as well, which is Saudi Arabia and Istanbul. Uh, and in, in every case, there was either a good degree of luck involved or uh, a lot of botching. Is there a question that people aren't frightened of being caught? Uh, I'm struck both in the Skripal case and the Khashoggi one, which I'm, I'm more fam- familiar with than the, the, the other two that you mentioned, that in the end, it, because it's state-sponsored and it's winked at by other people in in the the community of nations, they're not that bothered about getting caught at the end of it. Yes, well, in the case of the the uh, Saudi assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, that certainly seems to be the case. I mean, it was sort of so badly planned and so easily uncovered that one has to imagine that there wasn't a great deal of concern of the plot being uncovered. Uh, if there was, then uh, somebody was extremely inept. Um, so uh, it comes down to uh, who's involved. The CIA, CIA analyst has an interesting line about this, which is that how do you motivate somebody to, to be involved in the assassination? They either have to believe that they're going to get away or they have to be very, very well protected or else you need a fanatic. And uh, they sort of recommend a political or a religious uh, ideology to underpin everything. Um, so fear certainly uh, a part of the story. And that's where the, the individual human assassin, um, you know, may have a sort of a weakness, which perhaps leads indirectly to these cock ups. And in a sense, the, the, the point of the assassination is to convey a message to show we can reach you wherever you are. In a sense, if it wasn't unveiled that it was an assassination, if it was, if it genuinely looked like someone died peacefully in their sleep, then the there'd message no wouldn't have got, it. there'd be no point to it. That's exactly right. And the CIA analyst in the handbook goes into detail classifying uh, those cases and, and says that uh, the majority of assassination attempts will generally be what he calls open, yeah. he or she, I should say, calls open, uh, which is that they, they either need to have a demonstration effect or they need to be seen to be done by the group or state that's involved one way or another. So there, there needs to be this, this sense in which everybody understands, even if it is uh, with a wink and a nod, what's happened. Is it surprising or am I being naive that that this type of activity by government, you know, the CIA, but I mean, it's going on across different states. We had a piece by Clive Stafford Smith a couple of years ago, which talks about the US kill list, but the British have one, the French have one. Um, Is it naive to be surprised that this is considered at least to a certain extent part of statecraft in the modern world? Well, I think that uh, those of us who may still have that feeling uh, probably do need to get over it when we look at the facts. So we've been talking, of course, about some, you know, some of these quite bizarre and interesting cases from history. But it's very important to note that uh, in the contemporary world uh, today, 
the vast majority of assassinations and assassination attempts, indeed, are carried out using a very new weapon, the MQ-9 Reaper drone, and they are overwhelmingly carried out by one or two states, the United States and the British government, almost all, all of the United States, in fact. So since 1981, uh, assassinations have been legal under US law, but they're now essentially called targeted killings. And as you said, there's a great deal of documentation of the uh, kill lists, which are operated by the US state, which are sort of ticked off, as it were, with using drones in places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Libya, Somalia, and indeed further afield. And uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people on a scale never before seen in history are being assassinated using these weapons. We should note also, because this is um, the TLS, that the British government has assassinated two British citizens using drones before in 2015, Riyad Khan and Ruhul Ahmed, uh, in Syria with drone strikes. Those were uh, successful. And then it's perhaps even more important to note that though there is new technology, those same problems and trends in assassination are still there. So drone strikes are essentially a new form of explosive, and we've seen that explosive have quite a low success rate. And probably the best way of demonstrating this is by looking at the history of attempts to kill the al-Qaeda leader Ayman in Zawahiri. Yeah. So there have been numerous attempts by the United States to kill him with drone strikes, and thus far, uh, 105 people have died, at least, that we know of, including 76 children. Zawahiri is still alive. We have to leave it there, Tom Stevenson. It's a horrible subject, but it's worth worthy of attention, not purely as a historical one, uh, very sadly. Um, Tom Stevenson, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's an interesting point that we're talking about the state, because generally when we talked about this with Clive Stafford-Smith, uh, who was very exercised, correctly, about this, on this podcast, and he didn't like the phrase extrajudicial killing. killing. But is there a distinction between an assassination and an extrajudicial killing? Whereas the assassination, in my mind, linguistically might suggest something more opportunistic or something with no form of structure around it or less form of Isn't structure. Isn't that just a murder? Yeah, maybe. Do you know what I mean? The, 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 yeah, these, I mean the people that they, are purport, that they are trying to kill, the US and the UK government, in their view are dangerous mm. terrorists who are engaged in criminal activity that can't be brought before the court. I'm not sure, it doesn't make any difference. And, and Clive's maybe maybe they can be brought before the court. Well, that's Clive, but, I mean, which is kind of Clive's point. But this, yeah. this notion that you always imagine assassinations as a kind of historical phenomenon, and yet, as Tom was just saying, it's never been done more than it is today. Mm. Yeah. Which is depressing. Which is depressing. Welcome back, Tim. <laughs> Nancy Cunard, modernist, publisher and political activist of the first half of the 1900s, is, in spite of considerable achievements in those spheres, best remembered for being a bright young thing, the archetypal flapper muse of the roaring 1920s. She had a string of colourful affairs, including with Ezra Pound and, apparently at the same time and as unlikely as it may sound, T.S. Eliot, more on which in a moment. Predictably, Cunard's seemingly too extravagant lifestyle has forestalled her being taken seriously as a writer and thinker in her own right. Of course, we've seen this so many times before, until recently the same was the case for Cunard's friend, the poet Mina Loy, for instance. But Cunard's contribution to 20th century literature is now starting to be reconsidered, thankfully. Last year saw the reissue of her long out-of-print anthology from the 1930s, a colossal, groundbreaking work of transatlantic black history and culture called Simply Negro. Her poems, including her best-known long poem, Parallax, are now back in print. And to this, we can now add a short story, A Lost Night, 
newly discovered by Anna Gerling, who introduces it and its author in this week's TLS. Anna Gerling joins us on the phone now. Hello, Anna. Hello, lovely to be here. Now, we all know it's utterly impossible, of course, to have lots of sex with lots of people, like fashionable clothes, and be an important literary figure. <laughs> we've, all, we've all struggled with that in, <laughs> our, in our own that. way. My um, problem, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but could you please talk us through some of Nancy Cunard's achievements in, in the latter of those categories? Perhaps, uh, perhaps we could start with her as an editor and publisher. Well, she's perhaps best known still now as a publisher. She started the Aris Press in Paris in the mid-20s and um, she published some of the best-known modernist writers there. As I mentioned briefly in the piece, she um, was Beckett's first publisher, Samuel Beckett's first publisher, um, and she could be said to have discovered him in a sense. Um, she and Richard Aldington had a competition to discover or to um, for the best um, long poem and Beckett famously sat up all night writing a long poem called Horoscope which um, he then put through the, the letterbox of the Aris Press just before midnight um, on the day of the deadline and he won. That's brilliant. Um, she was the first publisher of Beckett but she also published um, Ezra Pound and um, Richard Aldington and uh, Louis Aragon published a French translation of um, Lewis Carroll's *The Hunting of the Snark*. Um, many, many modernists were published by her by the Aras Press. And she she was well placed. I mean, not not only because um, by the 1920s she was living in Paris and very much uh, in with that circle of, of French surrealists, but she was better placed than many of her contemporaries to to run this kind of a press because she had a fortune behind her. I mean, she was the only, she was the only heir to the founder of the Cunard shipping uh, line, wasn't she? You're right. She was the only, well, I don't think she was, she was the only Cunard heir. There were, she had cousins. She obviously had a huge amount of social and cultural capital and her mother, it was her mother's fortune that actually um, was greater than her father's fortune. Her father oh. didn't inherit that much. He had a title, he's a baronet and um, some a house and land. But her mother had, um, through a sort of rather um, indirect means, inherited a Western, um, like a San Francisco billionaire's fortune. Um, so it was her mother's money. And because it was her mother's money, it wasn't entailed in the way a, a sort of British aristocratic fortune might be. So her mother could control her daughter through the threat of being disinherited or not. And Nancy actually never had a fortune of her own. She had an income controlled by her mother and her mother cut her off in the, I think, late 20s or maybe early 30s um, upon discovering her affair with Henry Crowder, the black American jazz musician. And so I think people, Claude McKay, for instance, complained that he wasn't paid for the writing he did for Negro um, and he cast her as a millionaire, not paying black writers for their work. She didn't pay anyone for Negro. She didn't have the money to do it. Um, and, and that was she, some 155 contributors as well. Exactly. And she could only actually fund the publication of Negro because she won a court case. British and US newspapers had essentially suggested that she was only interested in racial politics, essentially, to kind of um, meet black men and sleep with them. And she sued and she won and that funded the publication of Negro. So, of course, she was a Cunard and she had an incredibly, incredibly privileged upbringing and life, but she didn't have a huge fortune well, behind her at this point. Was her reputation, do you think, always tainted by effectively misogyny, that she was in a, in a world that was dominated, obviously, 
by men, the world of of letters and um, uh, and sort of big literary figures. And do you, do you think that was a that it seems to have affected her reputation? Since then, she's known more for her social life than her activism. Was it true at the time? Did she, was she always battling against that? Do you think? Yes, absolutely. And I I would suggest also perhaps internalized misogyny on her part as well. I think that I mean she took herself seriously in one sense, but I think in another sense she didn't fight the misogyny she faced she she carried on doing her amazing work but she didn't attack it head on ever i mean from her very early career um as a poet in the late teens or during the first world war in the early 20s she was she was a contemporary of elliot's that suggested that she and elliot had an affair and she was almost better known than Elliot at this point. Um, and Elliot, in an early draft of The Wasteland, um, creates a character called Fresca based on Cunard. And um, it's astoundingly misogynist. Um, Fresca is called a, is a strolling slattern in a dirty gown, a doorstep dunged by every dog in town. Um, and it was referred to as being a mishmash of Vernon Lee and Pater and her poetry is completely dismissed in this caricature and Pound who also had an affair with um, with Cunard suggested that Eliot remove this which I think did Eliot a lot of favours but that's from very early in her career. And the the misogyny and well, all of that really goes goes into the reception of her the poem, the long poem uh, Parallax, for which she's best known from 1925, because that was that was a response to the Wasteland, wasn't it? Which which had been published three years previously. Absolutely. And Jane Marcus, who I have to say is a huge influence in the way I've thought about Cunard myself, suggests that Parallax and Eliot's The Wasteland were one of a set of three wastelands, and that. Um, Eliot's poem it was a response to Hope Merlees's Paris. Paris, and I always get Hope Merlees and Mina Loy slightly mixed up. I think yeah. I do mean Hope. Yeah, Merlees. yeah, Hope Merlees. Um, I think this is actually very striking. If you read um, the Wasteland after reading Paris, Eliot has clearly read Paris, and there are certain shared images, but that wasn't discussed or ever really referred to in reviews of Eliot's poem. And then Cunard comes along with her response, which is a kind of knowing response. It's not plagiarism, it's not derivative, I don't think, complex in its in its own right, and interesting in its own right. But it was simply dismissed as being either a kind of unknowing copy or a deliberate sort of attempt at plagiarism on her part. And so the fact that Eliot could write a, a kind of response to Merlise's poem and it becomes what we all know as a sort of singular masterpiece. Uh, and yet Cunard is, so try, tries to do something similar, perhaps, and it's just completely dismissed as a copy um, well, the, or a kind of lesser version of The Wasteland. I think is very telling. The TLS reviewer in, in classic oh, God, uh, classic God. sexist condescension, go on, go on. Um, he mentioned uh, the debt owed by Cunard to Elliot and, and said, well, you know, something along the lines of, oh, well, you know, at least we can hope that perhaps she's copying him because she is learning from this great master. <laughs> Well, I'm not surprised at that, to be honest, but yeah. <laughs> is that Edgell Rickward? I think I think it was. I don't know, actually, because it was Paris. anonymous at the time, um, and I haven't, I haven't, I'm not sure, actually, but I'm sure you're right. The, the thing with Cunard, as, as her response, and we should say, of course, that Virginia Woolf recognised that it was more than just a derivative work because the Hogarth Press published it, and I think Virginia Woolf gave the poem its title, didn't, didn't she? She did, and I think um, Jane Goldman actually suggests that Wolf herself was influenced by the poem because she was whatever novel she was writing at the time. I think has some 
um, allusions to parallax in it. Yeah, yeah and one, one assumes that Wolf wouldn't have published it if she hadn't thought it was good. Has, it's been rescued now, reputation wise. Now being judged uh, correctly as a po- uh, as a poem that stands alone in its own right. Is that is, is, has there been a, a I don't a know if it's been published by itself though. Has it? Has it? It's been published in the collected it has poems. Been published by itself a few times, maybe about 10, 20 years ago, and now of course it's um, been published again in the um, collection edited by Sandeep Parmar. Um, and it has received a um, certain amount of attention within modernist studies, I would say, mm. sort of within academia. But I, with academia, I have to say, I, I, I don't hear it referred to much. People don't really seem to no. talk reading about it, reading I've, it much. I've not. It's one of those, you know, there's a lot of poetry mentioned in the TLS, as you might imagine. It's not a, it's, she's not a name that's often been conjured with in, in my time here. Perhaps no, and interestingly, um, someone won... Um, uh, this is one of these my vague illusions. Somebody won a poetry prize. I can't even remember who the poet was with a collection called Parallax, and it wasn't even referred to that this title had already really? been used by Cunard, which I found quite interesting. We we should get on to the story that we've we've published. Um, yes, <laughs> a lost night. This was known that she'd written it, but it's never been published before. We don't think it, it was never known that she'd even written it. No one had ever heard of it. This is one of the most exciting moments of my um, recent years. I have to say. Um, she's known as a prolific poet, essayist, journalist, diarist, um, memoirist, but um, no one had ever known that she's written fiction. And I was trying to work on a piece about uh, the republication of Negro last year, and I was sort of procrastinating and looking through um, booksellers' catalogues for any Cunard uh, material because her work has become very prized, um, the rare book market, and very, very expensive because so rare. And so most of these things are out of my price range, but I was—I find it interesting to go and look and see what's for sale. And there for sale was this manuscript, and it was being advertised as a short story called A Lost Night, and I thought, well, it, mustn't, it must just be miscatalogued. It must be a piece of um, you know, memoir, or it's a letter or something. I just it, it assumed it must be wrong. And I contacted the bookseller, who um, sent me enough information to realised that it was a story but also even more excitingly for me it um, had come from Michael Arlen's estate and actually I first discovered Cunard a long time ago through Michael Arlen. Yeah. I was given one of his novels when I was a teenager and kind of suddenly fell in love with him I was fascinated by him so the fact that this story brought, to, brought the both of them together was just incredible for me really exciting. I mean it's very redolent it's, a, it's framed by a conversation between two women who and one of them talks about their experience with this wild, hot-headed Leo, who's a bit of a of a of a shit, if we're if we're, if we're being <laughs> brutally honest uh, about it. And it's in the this, way the 20s then often are. It's, I mean, <laughs> this is very redolent of the 20s. That, you know, Paris with all its kind of brittle glitter. Eugene Reese um, reminded me a bit of Hemingway. There's a bit of mm. Sun Also Rises in it. Um, there's a bit of anti-Semitism in it as well. Did that disappoint you, considering that she is this tremendous anti-racist? Uh, oh, I was Kuna. so disappointed when I read that. I thought, oh, come on, Nancy. One of my professors once said to me that when you read a piece of writing from the 1920s, it's not a matter of um, if but when the anti-Semitic portrait will appear. I mean, yeah. anti-Semitism is rife in literature of this period. It's not surprising in that sense, and it's very much of its time. But, oh, I was so disappointed because she's really known and admired for her anti-racist work and um, her anti-fascist work especially later uh, yeah I, I, what can I say it's there and we have to acknowledge that it's there and she obviously was very much of her time and class she is, in I that mean, sense yeah and she, but she is also in the story sort of identifying with him and putting herself in the same place as him 
Maybe that's an interesting take on it. I hadn't actually thought about it in that way. I think she obviously, she obviously is she's not violently anti-Semitic. No. She's not. It's, it's the casual anti-Semitism of the time, yeah, and then she sort of sits with yeah, him yeah, and exactly. spends a whole night with him, and they and they sort of get close in their way. It's I not felt just that the fact he was wearing glasses was not great either. Um, I mean, I wear glasses, but he was the fact that she's kind of identifying him as wearing glasses and she finds him more attractive without his glasses that seemed to play into an anti-surprise mm. yeah and then when she calls him not not repulsive is a classic i mean i don't want to put people off reading it because it's actually it no one's seen it before it's 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 so much of its period and if you'd like if you're interested in the fiction of the 20s in paris which is one of the great places to be writing in possibly all of human history it, it takes you into that world doesn't it it really does. And Mom March and the, it's very, very Jean Reese. There's a scene where she's sitting in the um, restaurant watching people around her and observing their clothes and observing the kind of, is it the, the confidence of the men who are kind yeah. of radiating a kind of self confidence. And it's just, I, yeah, I find it wonderful. She's, she's trying to work out where she fits into all of this, into this tableau of. And she's trying to life. mimic the woman and then um, she's kind of annoyed that she's being forced into sort of. Um, acting like the, all these other women on this night and that makes them even, her even angrier at Leo for forcing her into this honest um, kind of conformity in a sense. Yeah, well, it's a love, it's a, it, it, your piece is, a, is an absolutely brilliant introduction to it and it's a, then it's a very nice surprise to have a, an unknown story. So, Anna Girling, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, thank you all. Yeah, so meanwhile I sat there at dinner thinking of all this surrounded by women in bright clothes and jewelled hats and by men who looked rich and somehow professional radiating the feeling that they knew what they wanted and yeah. got it. Yeah, so interesting. And she, this huge uneasiness even though she as a white privileged woman yeah. in this kind of milieu is... It's creepy. It's very much of its time. And actually, uh, that's the sentence I sent to the designer to, when we drew the cover. <laughs> uh, the, the And you'll see that if you buy the paper, this lovely 20s feel of... And it's this brittle... It's the classic brittle world of the 20s Paris, isn't it? That no one's happy. It ends inconclusively. It ends pretty miserably. But it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's fascinating. The grottiness. There's grottiness. It's definitely <laughs> grotty. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. 
For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When Charles Dickens died in June 1870, he left the mystery of Edwin Drood unfinished, with the eponymous Drood missing in suspicious circumstances. But who killed him? Well, obviously we'll never know, although there is some convincing evidence Dickens had someone in mind and indeed told people, including his son and biographer. But Dickens' death has left a mystery, a narrative vacuum that others have sought to fill, most notably perhaps by a staged trial of the central suspect, John Jasper, in 1914, by the Dickens Fellowship. It was an occasion involving other literary figures. G.K. Chesterton was the judge and George Bernard Shaw was the foreman of the jury. Was the result a forensic yet bookish examination of all the available evidence? Well, not really. Peter Orford has written about what took place for the TLS and is on the line now. Peter, hello. Hi there, how you doing? Um, very good. So, but perhaps before we get into the slightly shambolic events of 1914, uh, is it worth you sketching out the, the very basics of the of the novel so we know who is who and, and what was actually being investigated? So the, the very, very basic plot is you have uh, a man, John Jasper, who has a nephew called Edwin Drood, who's engaged to Rosebud. And John Jasper is very clearly in love with Rosebud as well. And towards halfway through the novel, uh, Edwin Drew disappears in mysterious circumstances. Something he's murdered, something he's just missing, we're not quite sure what's happened there. But the general suspicion is that John Jasper looks like the most likely candidate for having uh, killed his nephew to clear the way to, to marry his fiancée instead. And the evidence is things like he sort of wanders around and looks longingly at quicklime and sort of says, oh, that quicklime was interesting. He does. He, he gets to know the local um, stonemason, Durdles, who has keys to the cathedral crypt, and he goes there and finds like interesting places to hide out. And, and there's lots of planning he's doing, and he's trying to frame somebody else, Neville Lambless, as a possible suspect as well. So there's lots of suspicious things that, that Jasper is doing here. Um, that many people, I mean, much later people would uh, argue that actually this is not a mystery but more of a, a sort of a Dostoevsky crime and punishment type novel instead where it's clearly meant to be Jasper and not a murder mystery at all. Um, by the time that this, this, this uh, trial takes place in 1914, we're in the height of the sort of the golden age of detective fiction and everyone's convinced that this is the great mystery novel. Um, and, and you get wrapped in this whole idea of who, who Dickens is as well. Because it's a Dickens mystery novel, therefore it can't possibly be a bad mystery novel. It must be a really good mystery novel. And therefore, what everyone's very keen to show is that really this must be some amazing twist or surprise that no one could possibly see to, to be worthy of being a Dickens mystery novel. But answer, actually, the answer may well be it's obviously John Jasper. Obviously, he, told, yeah. he told everyone it was John Jasper. He told the illustrator that uh, it was exactly. John Jasper and therefore it was. You know what? Yeah, pro probably it's exactly what it is. And I say that the, the, you get this later argument. People go, well, we should not be looking like a mystery novel. It's not that kind. It's not a whodunit. It should be more like a crime and punishment style novel, a Jekyll and Hyde thing where you're looking at the guilty man and how he deals with that. And that's a more interesting way of looking at the book. But for the, these early uh, 20th century um, sort of fans of Dickens, they were very keen to try to uncover hidden codes and secret identities and twists that no one could possibly spot along the way. Um, desperate trying to show this was a much better book than they thought it was. Um, and the irony was actually, it, it is a very good book. It's a really good book. Um, we don't need to do the whole kind of mystery element to it, but they were very convinced this was the way to show 
how great it was. And so the Dickens Fellowship uh, aspired a perfect marketing opportunity to kind of create sensation yeah. around an author, uh, the work of an author who had died, what, 40 years earlier? Absolutely, and, and it worked phenomenally well. I mean, the Dickens Fellowship uh, originated in 1902, so it's about 12 years since they've been, been running now. Um, and for a long time, there had been discussion of Edwin Drood in newspaper correspondence and letters pages, and there's lots of back and forth and things like the Times, people were like writing back angrily about who they think done it. Um, so the Dickens Fellowship, you've got the Dickensian, which is their dedicated uh, magazine, and now you had a space where people could talk about it even more in more detail. So you've got like a, 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 dad, a dedicated sort of fan base going on for it. Um, think, think angry Twitter, that sort of thing, you know, message boards, all of that in the early 20th century is all happening around Edwin Drew. So you get this, this, this sort of this fervour building up of everyone getting very kind of passionate about what they think Edwin Drew is about. And what was the purpose? Of, so was the event this was to, to, to make money? Um, what was the point of what, what were they trying to do? I think it's more just an awareness thing. Really. I mean, the fellowship, the fellowship is a very good organisation. Um, it always has been, always will be. It's had a very noble uh, purpose to try to, you know, celebrate Dickens, enjoy him, and do charitable work as well. So they weren't trying to be, they weren't cynical in this. They were just trying to to make an event around Dickens that would, that would generate interest, which it did absolutely. Um, I mean, there was talk about it beforehand in international press. People were talking about it abroad, and this can be a great event coming up. You know, everyone's it's going to happen as well. So people were intrigued by the idea. So, so you better tell us what, <laughs> tell us about the behaviour of. I mean, I, the, the thing that made, I, I was interested in this anyway because I love the idea of doing a mock trial for a literary character. Yeah. But then you throw in. Well, they wanted quite a bunch of literary folk. Not everyone showed up, but no. uh, G.K. Chesterton was did, did show up as a judge, and Bernard Shaw said he wasn't going to come, and then he showed up as the foreman of the jury. Anyway, and, and how and, did they behave? Oh, Shaw is just so <laughs> annoyingly sure about the whole thing. I mean, I'm just looking, I've got a transcript here of the whole thing, and just there's this random interruption for no purpose whatsoever, <laughs> where he accuses one character of being who they say they are, being somebody else, but for no purpose other than just being ridiculous for the sake of it. Um, and I said, at the end of it, um, I mean, Shaw stands up as foreman of the jury, and he says, uh, I'm happy to announce we've arranged our verdict in the luncheon interval. As all as all juries do, you know. And what's what's funny here is you've got Shaw doing that, but then the the the, um, the defence and the prosecution are people who have spent a long lot of time working on Edwin Drew, and so they're taking him very seriously. So you've got um, J. C. Walters, who is uh, at this point he's a prolific writer on Drew at this time, and so he's like infuriated. He says, um, "I'd like to urge the jury to be discharged for having formed their duties in the proper spirit of the law." So they're they're, they're angry. So why are you taking this seriously? And then, uh, how do, uh, but sadly. Chesterton is more Shavian than not because how does he, cause so he what does he say at the end he says, um, what does he say he says my decision is everybody here except myself be committed for contempt of court <laughs> off you all go to prison without any trial whatever <laughs> and what's, what's, what's most damning is the final line of the transcript is the court rose at 11.35 the actual hearing having occupied 4 hours and 20 minutes so, so if we can imagine a bunch of Dickensians have taken this hugely seriously uh, boned upon it prepared impressive yep. speech is, mm-hmm. uh, we set up a jury and then two literary just, <laughs> uh, figures yeah. show up and just make, just mess around. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and it's, I said, the people there go, it, it, as it wasn't either, it didn't work out of it being entertaining or educational because there wasn't any rehearsal, there was no kind of coordination, it's all turned up on the day and it's all tried to take control in their own way. And it's just, I said, people thought it's just far too long to be entertaining. But ultimately, no conclusion reached either as well. And what was it? Just, just so to be clear, the formal verdict, as spoken by Shaw, was the formal verdict. He said, "If we said not guilty, there's been no murder committed. However, if we say if we say not guilty, we're worried we'll be murdered in our beds. <laughs> so we're going to compromise and say manslaughter." 
So, so <laughs> even though they didn't, they didn't, they couldn't really say what had happened. No, because there's no one into the book. They said we can't guarantee it, but we'll say manslaughter to be on the safe side, basically. And if all, as if all of this wasn't ridiculous enough, yeah, this whole thing was then more or less repeated. In America, two times. Yep, so in America they thought, you haven't done this too, so we'll do it properly. We'll get people, <laughs> members of the law to do it. We'll get actual lawyers and, 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 and barristers to do it as well. And again, they said, well, there's no evidence, so we can't actually reach a conclusion here. Because that's the point, really, with this, that this is an unfinished novel, yeah. that either Dickens was going to be absolutely overt and Jasper did it and we were just going to get inside his head. Yeah. Or there may be some other plot twists along the way, but we have no possible knowledge of that because he didn't get round to writing it. And it was ve- it was only very ca- uh, casually sketched out at the point he died, wasn't it? He told Forster exactly. what was kind of going to happen, but there was no detailed notes ever, were there? No, but the thing is, I mean, Dickens has a history of telling Forster what's going to happen in his books. He discusses endings with his friends. You know, he talks about you know the death of Little Nell and so forth as well. So we know he talks about his endings with his friends. There's no reason why he wouldn't do this with Edmund as well. But the trouble is, if you think of this being a mystery novel in the 20th century sense, which means a whodunit, then it's a disappointing ending to think that Jasper did it. Yeah. And so they have to go, well, that can't be right, it must be something else. Rather than trying to say, actually, maybe it's not a whodunit, they, they try to turn it into one, and it becomes more ridiculous. Um, I mean, I mean, the fantastic uh, solutions people have come from since then. I mean, in 1964, it was Felix Elmer who said that actually um, Jasper's innocent, and actually um, Edwin's got a, a curse on his head because of his father, and there's a horde of Egyptian assassins trying to kill him, and actually it's, uh, Jasper's trying to save him from those assassins as well. And, and always, they, they say, all of this can be proved by the book. All this is yeah. absolutely true, and that, that's where it becomes dangerous. Does, does it matter this? Because what this reminds me a bit of, I've got this great um, three-volume set of the complete Sherlock Holmes, yeah. and it's done by the Society for Sherlock Holmes, which is yeah. a similar thing, and it's treated as if it's real, so everything's footnoted mm-hmm. uh, as if uh, Sherlock Holmes is real, Watson is real, and Conan Doyle's just the transcriber of the events. Yeah. Does it bring it to life more? I mean, do we, I mean, this was done for laudable reasons. Like you said, the Dickensian yeah. is a proper uh, uh, institution. Mm-hmm. Do we gain from this that it puts a bit of life into a, a text? It's a kind of an unsatisfactory text anyway, because um, I, I've read Edwin Drood. It's hard to read for pleasure because you know it's never going to finish. Well, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, when people first read it, of course, they didn't know that because it was published by Dickens Alive, who's writing an instalment. So they thought yeah. it's the latest book. We're looking forward to it. So there was that disappointment when, when he died. And then the publisher said, we're not going to tell you how it ends. And yeah. it's like... So that in itself was annoying. Um, I think it is hard for us to read it now because of knowing there's no end. Um, I think there's a lot to enjoy in what is there. I think it's a very well-written book, what is there, and I'd love to see how it finished. But I think also this way we've started to deal with it is interesting and it is fun. Um, and I think there's, there's, there's a great amount to be done with that of talking about how am I in it. Because it's a natural response to say, how do you think it's going to end after reading it? Everyone ought to have this discussion ultimately. Yeah. And I think if you're doing that in the right frame of mind, which is that, well, we'll never really know, but here's my idea. This is just a theory. That's fine. But at this stage in the 20th century, the early 20th century, there is this this move, not just to simply say, this is what I think happens, but rather, this is definitely what happens as well. And it's that seriousness that makes it, ironically, ridiculous. Um, so long as you're having a nice conversation about it, go, well, here's what I think happened, here's some in- interesting theories, then it's a great way to actually get into Dickens. But the egos of the people can... I mean, that's what strikes me the most. The ego. Yeah. We, we, we illustrate this with a picture of G.K. Chesterton as the judge. Yeah. Uh, and I want people to go and buy the paper just for that picture. <laughs> it, is, it is worth it. I, I mean, mean, I think that's why I've been laughing so hysterically <laughs> as we've been talking about it, because I just had a picture of his 
face in front how, of how me. How do you explain it? I mean, he looks like this He's giant, very ruddy. He looks like a publican. Well, it's, yeah. it's, Drunk it's, publican. It's a sepia image, and yet you can still tell how red his face is. Yeah. Just if you imagine a Toby jug brought to life. <laughs> <laughs> but a Toby jug in judges, judges robes and a wig. Yep. Uh, that's the other thing. It was serious enough for them to do that. Full dress, exactly. They're the actors playing all the characters. So they're, you know, it's fully done as totally as realistic as possible. But I mean, ultimately, you're trying to apply forensic, you know, legal approaches to what is ultimately the imagination of one person. Um, uh, I'm just going to read one. More. We're going to leave it now. But one more quote for you, Pete uh, Shaw, asserting to Chesterton as judge that if the learned gentleman thinks a British ju- jury are going to be influenced by evidence. He little knows his fellow countrymen. <laughs> so just getting rid of the entire principle of, uh, of, of the judicial system. Now. Absolutely. I mean, I'm glad to say it has got better. I mean, in the last <laughs> 20 years, the approach has got much better. There's much more kind of a knowingly irreverent way of doing it now. There's been some great musicals as well. People have taken a much more healthy approach to it in recent years. I, I have to say that. Okay. Um, but this is definitely, 1914 is, is where you get kind of almost your peak kind of drood... <laughs> um, Theories coming out. Yeah. Well, well, Peter, it, it, it's, it's it's cheered me up no end. Uh, uh, reading it and talking to you. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Cheers. It's good. It's also, good. also a novel with one of my favourite character names ever, Princess Puffer. <laughs> the, who's the who's the other one? Dick. What's the name of the private eye issue? Um, Dick Dachery. Uh, Dick, Dick Dachery. Yeah. By the end, do you think Dickens was saying, all right, what's the most Dickensian name I was thinking <laughs> He's of? He's having a competition yeah, with himself. Imagine if he came, because the, the, the man there's who shows crin- him around the crypt... Uh, crinkle... Oh, no, that's Durdle. There's the Durdle that shows him yeah. around the crypt. And then there's Crinkle something Well, you could say anything and we'd believe it when we say, oh, oh, hello, Mrs. Crinklebottom. And you go, oh, Mrs. Crinklebottom, that's the most Dickensian name. He yeah, must and have Rosa, that. Rosa Bud, who moves in so yeah. that she can have a respectable, lo- respectable yeah. lodgings with someone called something like Mrs. Twinkle toes yeah <laughs> and actually i seem to remember reading the notes of dickens where he as with henry james they wrote names of characters as they're thinking of it mm. and so uh in what who's murdstone in is he in david copperfield or uh, our mutual friend anyway murdstone i think is a terrible grave-like miserable mm. person and so he's got a murdwater mm. murdery man oh murdstone so yeah i know <laughs> but anyway do read this piece uh, 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 uh comp- i just love the fact that these two these Literally, things just just yeah. ruin it for everyone because yeah. they're they're <laughs> egos. Mayhem. Yeah, there you go. Um, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Pete Orford, Anna Gerling, and Tom Stevenson. Make sure you do get your hands on a copy of this week's TLS, which also has a section on the Middle East, including the best explanation of what's going on in Yemen. Uh, I've read it. Really is um, it's fascinating uh, stuff, and you, you hear about it all the time. And this was a real. It's reviewed like eleven books on the subject, and it, it's very interesting. Next week we look at various translated works. So some of our talents, Thea, at pronunciations and exuberant accents will be in full use. Uh-oh. It's an O for me. <laughs> isn't it? There's Italian fiction as well. You're going to be in your element. <laughs> Till then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.